Hey everybody, Chris Fafalius here. If you enjoy One Hit Thunder, which I'm assuming you do considering you're listening to it right now, I want to tell you about another great music podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. It's called Riffs on Riffs. On this season of Riffs on Riffs, hosts Toby Braswell and Joe Watson are breaking down one iconic pop song each week. Everything from Taylor Swift's Cruel Summer to Journey's Don't Stop Believin' to Naughty by Nature's OPP. Each week, they crack open the song, trace its history, decode those cryptic lyrics, and unearth the hidden gems in its musical DNA. Not only do they dive into the song's history, lyrics, and impact, they also go down some fun and oftentimes hilarious rabbit holes. So yeah, if you're a fan of One Hit Thunder, I think you'll also enjoy Riffs on Riffs. So go hit that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At maximum mediocrity, people say things like, I don't dress like this on the regular basis. This isn't my, you know, pooping uniform. This is not <laughs> And they also say things like, the, the nurses are usually either angels of mercy or whores. Every episode is a new experience where you get to know people that aren't famous, but should be. Why am I facing Floyd Mayweather in the Woods. My co-host Morgan and I track down the people you didn't know you needed to hear from. It's like hot sex in a mug. We are the Maximum Mediocrity Podcast, and we are on all major podcasting platforms. We'll be waiting for you. Today, we're joined by WYEP DJ Joey Spihar to discuss a band that feels crazy to call one-hit wonder, The Grateful Dead. Not even a legitimate deadhead like Joey can deny, however, that 1987's Touch of Grey was the iconic band's only charting hit. Like a Ken Kesey house party, this episode is fun, educational, and maybe a little weird. Will Joey convince us all to rush out and get a dancing bear tattoo? Light some incense, grab your hacky sack, and stay tuned to find out. So you're going to be the representative of deadheads all over the world who are going to be outraged at the fact that we're calling the Grateful Dead one-hit wonders. But the fact of the matter is they only had one legitimate hit, and that is Touch of Grey. How do you feel about that, Joey? I think that Touch of Grey was such a bit of a blessing and a curse for the band because it was that one top 40 hit that, you know, Chris is uh, someone in a band who sometimes gets popular. Sometimes when you bring that other element into it, it's not what they were looking for, you know? So 
the Grateful Dead are massively successful, whether they're on the Billboard charts or not. If you can sell out Giant Stadium in two minutes, I think you're doing okay. And Grateful Dead was not on our list that we would send people when they'd ask for suggestions. I think at the very beginning of this, Chris and I kind of decided that uh, we, we had found an article that was like the laws of a one hit wonder or whatever. And one of the rules was regardless if they ever had a charting hit, if they have multiple platinum selling records, you can't classify them as that, which like knocked out Grateful Dead, knocked out like Jimi Hendrix. That's technically a one hit wonder. Like Springsteen. A, yeah. Like there's a few of those where it's like you would be crazy to call them one hit wonder. But because you are such a big deadhead and you were the one that was like, I'd love to talk about this. We, we called an audible. We said, let's, let's do this. <laughs> I listened to a bunch of grateful dead today. And, and here's what I left off with. I have no problem listening to the grateful dead, like having it on. It was a great little like soundtrack to my, my morning and my afternoon. But I still think Taste of Grey is the only one that sticks with me because it's the only one that has some catchiness to cling to, I think, is the the difference to me. Oh, fighting words. <laughs> no, it, I don't think it's fighting words at all. And that's really what always drew me to the Grateful Dead when I discovered them in high school is oh, I'm this punk rock kid and I never felt like I fit in. My jeans weren't tight enough. My hair wasn't colored because my dad would have killed me if I came home with green hair. But in the world of the Grateful Dead, you can truly come as you are and be whatever you want to be. And you, as long as you're there for the music, at the end of the day is really all that matters. So as far as music subcultures go and scenes and genres that world is so welcoming to everybody. Even guys like you who come in with a little chip on your shoulder, you would be welcomed with open arms if you were there for the music. Now, to speak to your, the other songs aren't as catchy. Yeah, a lot of them aren't, but some of them are. <laughs> and, you know, the the big story, I think, around the Touch of Grey years, 1987, when the Dead had their first and only hit, was that it brought in all these other people who heard the song on the radio and expected something that they weren't going to get. And this had happened before in the early 70s when the Dead put out what are considered to be their masterpiece albums, Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. There were songs like Truckin' on the radio or songs like Casey Jones that are catchy, could be radio hits. People would come to the shows and start demanding to hear Casey Jones and with the Grateful Dead, you're going to get a different show every night. So those kind of there's always been this like element of natural selection among the fans where or the potential fans where you come looking for something. Maybe you find something different and love it. Maybe it's not for you and you move on. Right. I think the other thing I think about with the Grateful Dead is when I was a kid, I, I have this vivid memory. I don't even remember who it was. It was some random friend of my dad's. I was at their house for a barbecue and I'm talking like I was like six or seven. And I remember looking at their albums and finding a Grateful Dead CD. Uh, I think it was like a greatest hits or something because I've tried to track it down, but it's just basically like a skeleton with red hair. Like, Hey, like, and I was like, who is this? And I can tell you 100% that whatever I thought that album would sound like when I eventually listened to the Grateful Dead years later it wasn't close. <laughs> like I see that that cover, and I'm thinking like Eddie with Iron Maiden. You know, what I mean, like I'm thinking like, oh, this is gonna be some like 
crazy metal and it's like the most chilled out relaxed music and that's why i said it i have no problem putting it on but i'm a dude who wants to like sing along and and like get really into stuff so i think that's why the jam band never appealed to me i also don't like seeing like counting crows live for the same reason because they play the music in a way that you can't sing along with it and i'm I'm a sing-along kind of guy joey an interesting thing about your deadheadness you are probably the biggest deadhead that i know of i'm trying to think maybe there's a few kids i went to high school with that were into dead but an interesting thing is that you come from a punk rock background, as is evidenced. Now, people listening to this can't see this, but Joey right now is wearing a Grateful Dead Operation Ivy mashup shirt, which is so badass. <laughs> <laughs> is that especially in the 90s, there was such a backlash against hippies. And I don't know if that was coming from like no effects lyrics. I don't know where I got that because a lot of the punk rock I liked came from this same place that the Grateful Dead is from. So I feel like there was some, you know, clashing of heads there. So I ha- always had kind of a negative outlook on hippies and, and that culture in general. But when I look at it now, I'm like, those would have been the people that I would have been hanging out with. That The counterculture is what I would have been all about, the ideals and everything. I just think as time went on, be it deadheads or hippies in general, sort of became a caricature at some point. I'm sure you, you would agree. Sure, I would agree. And that, I think, is a bigger problem with the 90s in general. And I'm a kid of the 90s. I was born in 1983. I remember it, although maybe I remember it wrongly at times. But in the 90s, you you had to pick. You know, you couldn't, yeah. <laughs> you couldn't really live in multiple different worlds Everything was like, well, you are this, so you aren't that. And, you know, like you say, no effects. Writing a song about the day that Jerry Garcia died being such a beautiful yeah. day, it's it cemented that for a lot of people. And I, I think for me personally, I just didn't care anymore. Uh, I didn't want to have to pretend like I only liked one thing because I liked a lot of different things. And right. The world of the Grateful Dead always allowed that and encouraged that. Well, I think that's really cool. And also, Matt kind of touched on this. In a way, I I feel like I've tried to like the Grateful Dead many times for a lot of reasons. First of all, Grateful Dead fans, I'm sure, have differing opinions on Touch of Grey, but I like this song. I, I, I would I, say I, I love this song. I would go yeah, that far. I think it is... A great song that when I hear it, I'm going to listen to it till the end. It's good. It's after the fact, way after the fact, too, of the Grateful Dead, too, right? It's towards the end. Well, it's... Uh, Of Jerry Garcia. There are... I mean, when you look at at the Grateful Dead, I think you always have to think of it in segments. And a lot of that has to do with who's playing the keyboards. In the early days, that was Pigpen. And Pigpen died in 73. He was replaced by Keith Godshaw who brought a completely different element to the band, a jazzier sound, uh, only played acoustic piano. And then when Keith died in 1979, they brought in Brent Midland, who had been in a band called Silver. You may know the song Wham Bam Shangalang from the Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy uh, soundtrack. Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah. that was Brent's band before the Grateful Dead, and Brent brought something completely different with synthesizers and his voice. 
Plus, he had this this sort of telepathic ability, as everybody in the in the Grateful Dead does, because you know when they're on stage, they often refer to it as a as a conversation. Somebody plays a series of notes that maybe takes it this way, and and, and everybody's talking back and forth musically. But with Brent and Jerry, there was just some sort of mind meld that it really brought the music to another a whole different stratosphere. I was getting at. There have been little pieces of Grateful Dead that have hit me here and there and I'm, and have made me think, well, maybe I like the Grateful Dead. I'll give you some examples. Sublime did a really awesome cover of Scarlet Begonias. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoa, wait a second. Maybe I like the Grateful Dead. Then in the very final scene of the show Freaks and Geeks, one of my favorite shows ever, the song Ripple is featured. And what's funny about that one is I was like, wow, I love this. And then I listened to the song without watching the show just on its own. I'm like, oh, I, I kind of don't like this <laughs> when I'm not watching the show. That being said, they have, you know, touches of greatness. I don't necessarily agree with Matt on nothing else being catchy. I think they have plenty of catchy parts. I think Casey Jones is catchy. I think Box of Rain is catchy. There's obviously some true emotion behind these songs. When I listen, That American Beauty album for sure feels like a masterpiece that just doesn't Uh, appeal to my personal taste Mm -hmm. but i think that at the show feeling the love and also probably feeling the effects of psychedelic drugs that the jamming and the environment and the peace and love that would come at a grateful dead concert would take it to that next level i can't imagine now i could be wrong about this but i wouldn't imagine it would be like going to a big concert where everybody's drunk and fighting and obnoxious like maybe say a bro country show or you know a kid rock show or whatever something uh, of that ilk i would think that a grateful dead show would be a really happy time where you could do some fun people watching yeah the thing is that in any crowd with any band there's always gonna be assholes no matter where you go and that was a big big problem for the grateful dead after Touch of Grey, when ah. when 20,000 people are coming to the show and an additional 30,000 are coming to the parking lot to party, right. to have fun, those are the people that don't care about the music, and that's, that's where things go downhill. With the Grateful Dead or any incarnation thereafter, the thing about that joy in the crowd is because there's truly... No pretense. Nobody is there to look cool. Nobody is there to be seen. If you're in the room, chances are you are there for the music. And that is always uh, number one. Now, a a lot of the love for Touch of Grey, because I I do think that Deadheads like like the song. It doesn't matter that it's popular. But when that Mm -hmm. song came out the previous year... Nobody was sure was there going to be a Grateful Dead because Jerry was in a coma in 1986. Right. He uh, had his un- his diabetes was raging. He was on heroin again, and things were just really looking grim. So for them to come out with that song at that time when everybody is happy and healthy and lucid and creative, it was uh, it was a real you know as the lyrics say, "I will get by." 
I will survive. And that meant, I think that meant everything for fans at the time. Although the song did exist for many years prior, first played uh, back in 1982. Whoa, really? It existed, but they hadn't done the recorded version or did it take that long to hit or took that long or was it that long till they finally made a music video? That's another thing we have to talk about. The Grateful Dead never made a music video before this. The Grateful Dead made a music movie. Uh, If you've ever seen the Grateful Dead movie, which I think was from 74, it is brilliant. It's a lot of the live performance from the shows or the show in San Francisco and a lot about the audience at the time mixed with this like bonkers animation. So, but you're right. Nope like MTV music video right. and that was that was huge when it came out and and I was reading about the band's reaction at the time they unfazed I mean they you know they they know they were successful in the ways that they wanted to be successful but it was just like hey uh, you know these we've kind of been getting made fun of for the past decade and now we're the talk of the town so Whatever. We'll just we'll just roll with it as we always do. I mean, it could be argued probably and I would <laughs> it'd be hard to argue against this. Are the Grateful Dead the biggest cult band ever? They have to be. I would right? say so. I, I, th- I think so. I think so. Absolutely. And all the bands that followed in their footsteps are just kind of like, oh, Grateful Dead isn't around anymore, so now we're we're gonna transfer over to what fish, yeah. you know, and 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 bands that do a similar thing. They have to give all the credit to that, and and a shared uh, love, probably of all three of us in here, a band that's kind of gotten a little bit of residual of that is Ween. Yeah. In you know, in recent decades, yep. I feel like. Right? Well, isn't I mean, it- you also have to if we're talking about cult bands, we bring them up a lot. But I mean, woot woot! You gotta give some credit to yeah. ICP as being a cult. That's band a whole as other well. thing. But, but, <laughs> but similar in that they have their own culture. Yeah, they have for their sure. own culture. They have their own shows. There's like their hardcore yeah. loyalists. They definitely have a they have a cult following too. There's a few things I want to address real quick. Uh, you were going through all the different keyboard players, but I also wanted to highlight something that I think is really impressive and wild in any landscape is the fact that basically from their formation in '65 until Jerry's death in '95, they're primary four members have always just been those primary four members. They never had a bassist or drummer change up. They never had a guitarist change up. They never had a vocalist change up. They may have added more stuff like backup singers and drummers and keyboards, but like the core four dudes were there from start to end until Jerry's death, which I think is so rare and so cool and mm-hmm. says a lot about friendship. Chris, I, I almost randomly sent you a text because I'm almost done. Get back. And it made me wonder this question. And when you're in a band, how many times do you feel like the people in the band are your genuine friends that you hang out with? Like if you weren't in a band with them, you'd be hanging out with them regardless. And how many times does it feel like it's kind of just a business relationship to a certain extent? I mean, in my experience, it's never really felt like a business uh, relationship. But what it's felt like to what you're getting at, Matt, is that it feels like family in that you can get mad at family. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can you could be annoyed and frustrated, but you know that in the end you would, you know, you would do anything for that person, even if they're pissing you off, <laughs> you know, a, a lot at that moment. And I'm sure bandmates have felt that way about me. I felt that way about bandmates. But when you've been together that long, which I'm sure Grateful Dead would be a perfect example. I, I'm sure that, Jerry wasn't easy to deal with for everything I've read about him. 
yeah, he was an out-of-this-world talent, but he had his problems that his problems become the band's problems, obviously. Yeah, I think that he hated that. I think that Jerry, it's well documented that Jerry did not want to be the leader of a band, uh, but people were drawn to him as this key figure. And that at the end, when these crowds got so big, when these shows became so massive and you can't walk down the street anymore. That's when Mm -hmm. he really started to to really suffer and retreat. And that is when he took up scuba diving and found that there was this solace under the water where you're just with the fish, man. And they nobody can nobody needs anything from you. And I, I think that. For Jerry, it was always 1,000% serving the music, and everything else doesn't matter. So when everything else gets put on you, then you start to resent it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess he was part of the – he was the face of the band, not only – being guitarist and lyricist but he also had the look yeah he had he's the most recognizable i honestly probably couldn't pick the rest of the guys out of a lineup you know i know these guys are big names i know phil lesh and 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 weir and these guys are all big names but i wouldn't recognize them jerry garcia he's one of the most recognizable guys and i don't and it's almost like that later jerry garcia is even more recognizable Mm -hmm. than a young jerry garcia 100 percent. the the other thing i wanted to bring up because you had mentioned you know there was this big divide of like the punks and the hippies for for especially in the 90s but then you also brought up that sublime did a really great cover of Grateful Dead. And I was going to say, I feel like the the happy medium of those two is kind of in that third wave ska period where I feel like in the punk scene, when they would talk about hippies, it felt really malicious where like, I there's definitely ska songs where they talk about hippies too, but it always just felt way more like tongue in cheek and kind of like, hey, we're in on the joke and we kind of like this kind of lifestyle a little bit more. What's your read on that as a, a punk rocker turned deadhead there, Joey? I'm, I mean, isn't it just so telling that the band that bridges the gap is another one that's constantly shit on and that's sublime? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Right. And, and that, yeah, and that yeah. a, a, a totally a band that takes a little bit from everything. You can cover uh, an old ska song and bad religion plus have these insane creations of your own because i think that like the grateful dead they're just music fans at the end of the day yeah yeah i i love sublime for the record me too right they are so polarizing Mm -hmm. they are that band you can go buy a sublime t-shirt at spencer gifts (laughs) you know there's these spencer's gifts bands that i think of and either icp falls in there (laughs) too you know you go go get these t-shirts of these bands that are such a part of counterculture that it almost becomes a caricature yeah. of the counterculture. I mean, my my first job was I worked at a head shop at the local mall called Habitat and like we basically just exclusively <laughs> sold like hemp bags, incense burners and Grateful Dead and Sublime shit. Like that mm-hmm. was like our bread and yeah. butter in that store. Chris, had you ever been to Telaropa in Oakland? Yeah, of course. Of course. Of course, yeah. I mean, yeah. The best. Uh, there's yeah. it, it, I mean, that's a, a conversation for another day. Um, is this secondary market with bands like the Grateful Dead, where like like this shirt, for example, it's it it, cre- it, it sparks so much creativity in the strangest yeah. of places. 
And I think yeah. I think that's something to celebrate. You know, I think that we can thank Grateful Dead and the Grateful Dead heads for a lot of things that I actually like. Tie-dye, hacky sacks, incense, beards, <laughs> um, you know, all these, uh, what are those? Devil sticks. Dude, devil all sticks these, like, rule. I was thinking about that. I need to, Chris, now that you've done the punchline hacky sacks, I think it's time for some punchline yeah. devil sticks on the yeah. next tour. <laughs> we've talked about it. We've talked about it. Hey, one more thing that I never knew until doing the research for this episode, which I think is really cool. Another reason I probably would have loved the Grateful Dead had I been alive in 1965 and hanging out in san francisco is the grateful dead's first show took place on december 4th 1965 at one of ken kesey's acid tests which were a series of parties that he had that were centered basically to use and to advocate for lsd and i knew all about these things one because i'm a big ken kesey fan everybody anybody who's listening who doesn't know ken kesey of course wrote one flew over the cuckoo's nest that's what he's most well known for but he also wrote what i it might be my favorite book of all time called sometimes a great notion if you haven't read this book it is the craziest book ever about these loggers in oregon and the book starts with there's just a human arm hanging over a river i I, that that's all i'm gonna give you it's a crazy crazy book one of my favorites but also as part of that the first book that hunter s thompson ever wrote was called hell's angels it's an easy read you can read this book in like two or three days you can read it in one sitting really if you if you had a bunch of hours to do it but he basically befriended and went out with the hell's angels and part of the book is him and the Hells Angels show up at one of Ken Kesey's parties. So you have all these different walks of life together at these parties, dropping acid together. And to think that it was at those same parties that I've read about that the Grateful Dead formed, it just, that I don't know, that was mind-blowing to me. That was like a lot of worlds colliding at once. And I think that if you went back, like, I hope, so bad that somebody invents a time machine or maybe after we die we retain our consciousness for a little bit and get to experience these things in person that we've read about i think you would have hated it i think a lot of people would have hated it because you know the the grateful dead at those acid tests were not performing they were tripping and on the stage and it could have gone beautifully it could have gone horribly and it did it makes me so curious to I want to. I want to know what it felt like. It depends. I, it probably depends on how the acid was hitting you at the moment. I mean, it doesn't sound like there were many people not tripping right. at this thing. So it may have been beautiful music that sounded weird. It may have been terrible music that sounded amazing. Who knows? This was early in their career, so we we have no idea what they sounded like. Because actually, it was not until a few years later that the first of over 2,000 concerts that fans recorded, that there's, I guess, that there's a recording of from the Fillmore in San Francisco, which, Joey, I've gotten to play at the Fillmore twice. No way. Yeah, I walked around, I looked, there's lots of Grateful Dead. You know, every concert there has its own original artwork, beautiful poster, but it was the Get Up Kids Farewell Tour. Okay. We played there w- with the Get Up Kids and Say Anything, and, our, and the poster is like a the Donnie Darko rabbit. And then I played there again with Real Big Fish. How about that? Wow. Yeah. I got to play at this historic club twice. And even at that time, mid-2000s, not even not even caring at all about the Grateful Dead, still thought it was really cool, all the history and all the posters. It wasn't just the Grateful Dead. It was 
every band you could possibly imagine at the most beautiful venue imaginable. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. uh, And right now you're going to be getting a little little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all. (laughs) And my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that make titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, do you have an idea for a podcast but don't know where to start? Or do you have an already existing podcast that you want to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. From concept development to theme music to editing to logos, WeKnowPodcasting.com is a one-stop shop for all things pod. Don't hesitate to hit us up. We're very nice. Bringing it back to Touch of Grey, it is a cool music video, which I, was I done love by. This video. <laughs> yeah, it was done by the guy who who did the animation for the movie that you were talking about. Right. Anyone who hasn't seen it, you should watch it. It's a very good video, which helped propel the song to number nine on the Billboard 100, number one on the modern rock charts. And dude, when I watched the music video, I'm like, damn. Jerry Garcia looks so much older than all the rest of the band. He seriously, I'm not exaggerating, looks probably 25 to 30 years older than the rest of the band, which is not the case. He looks like he's in his mid-60s or so, and it blew my mind when I found out that he was 53 in 1995 when he died, which means that he had to be about 44 or 45 years old in this video, and I, I mean... I guess it's just all the health problems and hard drugs and everything because he looks like a very old man in this video. Yeah. I want to highlight, side note, when this song peaked at number three in October of 1987. Nine, number nine. Number sorry, nine. number nine, number nine in 1987. It was up against <laughs> the, the first week. The number one song was Didn't We Almost Have It All by Whitney Houston. Nice. Uh, and then the second week, I would argue as opposite of... Grateful Dead as you could possibly get. Uh, White Snake with Here I Go Again. Wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. I, that, yeah. that, that's quite the juxtaposition there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's three three whole different worlds of music <laughs> colliding in 1987, which does seem like a year. I think we've touched on this in the past. 
anything goes in 1987. We were all over the place. We had Europop. We had, yeah, Whitney Houston. We had hair metal. We had, And obviously, we also had The Grateful Dead, which is pretty cool. And don't forget, the, the summer of 1987 saw The Dead go out on tour with Bob Dylan. And wow. a, a lot of the reason, I think, that a lot of people go to a Bob Dylan concert, and same thing with The Grateful Dead, expect something. You go in with this idea in your head of what it's going to be, and Bob Dylan doesn't do that. Bob Dylan does what Bob Dylan wants to do that day. And I think a lot of that comes from that summer spent with the dead, where they were really pushing him to play older material, play songs that maybe he'd never played live at all, and he resisted. Now, I was reading that before rehearsals for that tour started, Dylan went to a jazz club and he saw someone, I don't remember his name, but he was performing songs in different ways, kind of updating these familiar songs that Bob knew, put them in a new light, and that just sparked something inside of Bob Dylan that really made him embrace that adventurous spirit and the the more exploratory side of music. And I think that's stuck with him the rest of his career wow yeah okay and that that ties a lot of things in is the grateful dead are obviously known for that being known as the jam band and i have heard that about bob dylan that you don't know what you're going to get matt brought up the counting crows earlier one of my favorite bands ever and yeah when you go see them he even says in Counting Crow's most popular song, Mr. Jones, I want to be Bob Dylan. And then he does that Bob Dylan type thing, that that vocal delivery. You're not able to sing along. You got to respect it for what it is. You either love it or you hate it. A lot of people complain about it, including Matt at the beginning of this episode. I think it's kind of cool and funny, to be honest. And, I, and I'm sure I might like it even more if I was tripping or something. But <laughs> I think a lot of this stuff is cool. And I think that I'm a little bit inspired to like dive a little deeper. Joey, if I... If I were to start somewhere, because sometimes, dude, sometimes it takes a couple listens through something for it to connect. A recent example, Joey, I don't know if you know this band, Gang of Youths. This Australian Dude, the new album, I like liked it. And then by the time I was on like the third or fourth listen of the Angel in Real Time album, I'm like, oh my God, this is one of the best albums I've ever heard in my life. But it took three, four, five listens through the whole thing. So if I were to give a Grateful Dead album a real shot, is it American Beauty? And I have a, I have a similar question of if I really love Touch of Grey, would I like the rest of the In the Dark album? Or is that song kind of an anomaly even on the album that it's on? Well, I'm looking at it now and I mean, it's kind of an anomaly, but okay. there are... <laughs> You know, there's there's a great song called Hell in a Bucket, which is uh, typically a show opener for the dead. And I think that song is it's scathing uh, about the you know where the world was going in 1987, but catchy and fun. Um, I think West L.A. Fadeaway is a, a is a jam. I mean, it's got the groove. It creates this mystique. But no, there's not. Touch of Grey is the single. Like, yeah. it, it is the single. And that's okay. Yeah. yeah. So that, that brings us that brings us all the way around. Joey, you are saying that Grateful Dead fans don't dislike Touch of Grey like we would assume. It's more they didn't like the people that then came to the shows that were already huge. 
Like Grateful Dead didn't need to bring more people to the shows. And some of these people that then came to the show were undesirables. They were people that were there maybe for the wrong reasons, maybe right. to cause trouble and, and break into their little utopia that they created and they would follow around. I, I heard a similar thing with Ben Folds. When Ben Folds 5 blew up, the uh, the fans of the first album started referring to people who would come to the show just to hear Brick as a bunch of brickheads. And <laughs> and back in nine, in the, you know, after 87 and 89, I think is when it, when this really peaked. And Chris, you may, you may remember hearing about a lot of to do a small riot, uh, actually at the civic arena in 1989, when the dead played two shows in April. I mean, it was on the news. Sophie Masloff, the mayor at the time referred to the entire crowd as a bunch of dead enders. Wow. Uh, but it, you know, people would, would refer to deadheads and the deadheads would refer to these other people as touchheads, you know, people who are just kind of <laughs> checking it out. But it, it, it was, it's not, it's not ever about excluding the person. It's about, I think, excluding the negativity. And, and right. there was a lot of negative attention then thrust onto the band because of people who were showing up not for the music. No, that makes sense. And I could see that happening to any artist, especially one that already has a following. Once a song hits, it goes to the mainstream. And then you have, I don't know, everyone from the drunk football player to the, you know, <laughs> to the troublemaker to, yeah, to the people who aren't there for the right reason. And if they get there and they find that what it is, is for them, then come on in. Right. Yeah. I just, could you imagine, because I could, I could never see myself doing this. Hearing one song on the radio and liking it enough, but not enough to buy the album and hear the rest of what the band is about, but still be like, I'm going to go to that concert because I like that one song that I vaguely know from the radio and then be like so belligerently well, aggressive about it not being what you thought you were coming to see. You mm -hmm. got to keep in mind, the three of us who are talking right now are audiophiles. Is that, yeah, the, is that I, the word for it? We love music. So if we like an artist, we're going to dig into their catalog. I mean, that was the gift of liner notes. I found so many bands just because liner notes existed when I was a mm -hmm. kid. And I'd be like, sure. who are they thanking? Because I'm going to go pick up their albums also. Uh, I mean, I, Nirvana <laughs> was my life uh, in, when, I, when I was a kid. So thanks to Nirvana, I know the Pixies and I know the Raincoats the and puppets. I know the Meat Puppets. <laughs> yeah. And my, uh, you know, I, and I think it just comes back to what I'm going to keep preaching to you guys is that if you're there for the music, then nothing else matters. You're going to, if you're serving the music, that's what it's yep, all about. I agree. And so that, that brings us to, to the big question, which I don't think is much of a question this week. We have to decide if the Grateful Dead brought the one hit thunder or if they were <laughs> one hit blunders. And I just, I think, you know, from my perspective, wow, from Deadhead's perspective too, maybe the blunder was that they had the one hit at all, right? I mean, I, they obviously, it's ridiculous to say they're anything but thunder, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you in the sense of like, the single almost detracts from the whole movement entirely. Like, I kind of agree with you in the sense of like, maybe it would have been better if they were by all accounts a no hit wonder and they just were this important cult movement for 30 they still plus are years. they still are yeah, yeah. And, and i would argue that they might be a blunder if you look at different big moments in the world of the grateful dead always fuck it up mm. 
there was Monterey Pop that, you know, this was their big chance in 1967 to kind of get out of San Francisco and, and bring this music that they were making to a wider audience. So they followed The Who the first time that The Who played and smashed their instruments in the United States. So then they get on stage. Who follows them? Jimi Hendrix. <laughs> In Woodstock, a notoriously bad set where they're getting electrocuted while on stage. And, and you think of Woodstock and you think of hippies and you think of the Grateful Dead. But that big show was horrible for the Grateful right. Dead. And that is what that touch of gray is all is all about. It's it's things are great and we love life and the joy of it. But there's always that little touch of gray that's going to get you. It's a defeatist yeah. attitude that always is with the Grateful Dead, no matter how much joy there is. And I think that's something that I appreciate about it as well, because I'm a happy guy, but I try not to get too excited, you know? And I think that they, they it seems to me, like just Jerry Garcia alone, his his personal life story, I'm just like, oh my God. You know, speaking of, Ken, we talked about Ken Kesey earlier. Well, you know, after, so uh, Jerry Garcia then, he had a kid with his first wife, and then he had two kids with the someone named Mountain Girl, I believe mm-hmm. was her name, who yep. who was the mother of Ken Kesey's first daughter. And then it was just from there, it was just like all these different relationships, all these different women Jerry Garcia was with, had kids with, and it was just this big. Some of them seemed to over really overlap with each other, and it just really seems to to go right along with what I what seems to be the story of the Grateful Dead one big what did, what did they call their tour it was like the never ending tour or something like that I thought that was share oh uh, hold on <laughs> I, I think I got here yeah anyway Martin Scorsese made a movie about them at some point long strange trip yep yeah is that worth is is that where I should start I mean Chris uh knowing what I know about you and I would say that is a great place to start because you're going to get that context. You're going to get a little bigger picture of the outside world and that inside world that kind of affects everything. I mean, the, the reason that concerts sound good today is because of the Grateful Dead. And that is fact. In 1974, they built, uh, you may have heard of the wall of sound, which was a massive, massive undertaking put up and torn down every night. But before that, you know, you watch those, the videos of like the Beatles playing at a stadium and what they're playing through the announcers PA. Yeah. (laughs) It's garbage. And the Grateful Dead really brought, and and, and once again, if you're serving the music, then things are going to be the way that they should. I, I think that the reason the concerts sound good today a lot to do with the dead. Well, that's awesome. I don't. I don't think you could call him a blunder. Then I think we got to go. We got to go a triple. A triple thunder. If that's the case, definitely. <laughs> Which it would have been really funny if you would have went blunder. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest Grateful Dead fan just call, calling him a blunder. But well, I just don't want the rest of you guys catching on. You know what I mean? Let's. Yeah. R- all right. <laughs> keep this keep thing private. <laughs> Joey, thanks for coming on, man. Oh, the, thanks for having me. You You have filled us with knowledge. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Joey is a, a DJ at the coolest radio station that I, I've ever known of, w, WYEP, who's always been really kind to my band, Punchline. And uh, thank you guys for that. And 
Joey, if people want to listen to you, when and how can they listen to you? A, for people in Pittsburgh, and B, I believe that people could listen even if they're not in Pittsburgh, right? Right. So if you're in Pittsburgh and you own a radio, you can put that on 91.3 FM, and I'm on every morning, every weekday morning from 6 to 10. In fact, I used to do a little feature I called Wake the Dead, where I played a Grateful Dead song every morning, like right after 6. We recently moved that back to like just after five. So if you're up <laughs> early, you can catch that every day. Uh, but yeah, I'm around. And if you're not from Pittsburgh, you can also listen to WYEP, correct? A- anywhere in the world, WYEP.org. This has been One Hit Thunder. One Hit Thunder is hosted by Chris Vifalios of the bands Punchline Pack and Another Cheetah and produced by Matt Kelly of Geekscape.net. Underneath me, you're hearing Green Hills off the Punchline album Lion. Visit punchlion.com for merch, tour dates, and news. Do you want to start a podcast? Then contact Chris and I at weknowpodcasting.com for how we can make your show sound as professional as possible. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting app. And tune in next week for another episode of... One hit thunder. Think that it's gonna work out. Nothing's ever gonna work out quite the way you think. It's gonna be different. Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.